0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the March 6th edition of the WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, attorney with the Floyd's Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an industrial insurance carrier and the defense firm who represented them cannot yet be dismissed from a claimant's fraud and slander lawsuit filed against them, at least for now. Heath Fulkerson and his related entities sued Albert and McKenzie LLP, a law firm, Jeremiah Brasher, one of its attorneys, and Hartford Accident, an indemnity company for intentional infliction of emotional distress, slander, and fraud. The workers' compensation case involved an alleged August 22, 2020, injury. Albert and McKenzie LLP was the attorney of record for Hartford in that case. Mr. Brasher investigated Fulkerson's claim, communicated with Fulkerson regarding possible settlement, developed Hartford's defenses, conducted discovery, and filed documents in that case. The complaint alleged that as a result of defendant's actions, Heath Fulkerson was forced to represent himself in Workers' Comp Appeals Board case and incur costs, but the complaint did not specify the conduct or statements by the defendants upon which these claims for reliefs were based. So the defendants filed a special motion to strike the complaint, asserting that since Mr. Fulkerson's claims arose from conduct in representing Hartford before the WCAB, it was a protected activity. The trial court denied the motions, concluding that the complaint was too vague to support such a finding that it arose from a protected activity. On appeal, Hartford claimed that the trial court should have considered the declarations of defendants submitted with their motion, which they claim allowed them to meet their threshold burden of showing that plaintiffs' claims arose from protected conduct at the WCAB. But finding no error, the Court of Appeal affirmed the trial court's order in the unpublished case of Fulkerson v. Albert and McKenzie LLP and others. The California Code of Civil Procedure sets out a method for striking what are commonly called strategic lawsuits against public participation, or SLAP S-L-A-P-P, actions, which are lawsuits brought primarily to chill the valid exercise of the constitutional rights of freedom of speech and petition for the redress of grievances. A motion brought under this section is called an anti-slap motion, which involves a two-step process and only a cause of action that satisfies both steps is subject to being stricken under the statute. At the first step of the anti slap analysis, the moving party must show that the plaintiff's cause of action arises from an act by the defendant taken in furtherance of the defendant's right of petition or free speech under the United States or the California Constitution. That includes statements or writings in connection with matters before the WCAB. But here... Mr. Fulkerson's lawsuit did not identify the conduct or statements made by Hartford or their attorneys that were slanderous or fraudulent. The defendants tried to meet that burden of proof by their own declarations attached to their motion, but did not cite legal authority for the proposition that they can satisfy their threshold burden with declarations articulating possible basis for the plaintiff's claims, when the challenged pleading does not contain such allegations. The Court of Appeals said it cannot assume that Hartford's attorney must have engaged in protected activity. The trial court properly denied the anti slap motions. Thus, the court need not address the second step, whether the plaintiffs could demonstrate the probability of prevailing on the merits. A National Labor Relations Board issued a ruling in an employment law case that places nationwide limits on employers' ability to place confidentiality and non-disparagement clauses in severance agreements with their employees. The employer in this case, McLaren McComb, operates a hospital in Mount Clemens, Michigan, where it employs about 2,300 employees. Local 40 RN Staff Council, Office of Professional Employees International Union, AFL-CIO was the exclusive collective bargaining representative of a unit of about 350 of its service employees at that hospital. As a result of the pandemic, in March 2020, the government issued regulations prohibiting McLaren-Macomb from performing elective and outpatient procedures and from allowing non-essential employees to work inside the hospital. McLaren-Macomb then terminated its outpatient services, admitted only trauma, emergency, and COVID-19 patients, and temporarily furloughed 11 bargaining unit employees because they were deemed non-essential employees. McLaren-Macomb then permanently furloughed those 11 employees and presented each of them with a severance agreement, waiver and release, that offered to give severance pay for each furloughed employee if they signed the agreement, and all 11 employees did sign it. This agreement required each of them to release McLaren-Macomb from any claims arising out of their employment or termination of employment, and contained provisions broadly prohibiting disparagement of McLaren-Macomb and requiring confidentiality about the terms of the agreement. An administrative law judge found that McLaren-Macomb violated the National Labor Relations Act by permanently furloughing the 11 employees without first notifying the union, and giving it an opportunity to bargain about the furlough decision and its effects, and by directly dealing with the 11 employees while entirely bypassing and excluding their union. However, the administrative law judge found no violation of the act as a result of the non-disparagement and confidentiality provisions of the severance agreement, relying on two NLRB 2020 Trump-era decisions involving Baylor University Medical Center and another one involving IGT-DBA International Game Technology both of which reversed a long-settled precedent that these provisions and a severance agreement are unlawful. The National Labor Relations Board issued a decision in this McLaren-Macomb case returning to this long-standing precedent by holding that employers may not offer employee severance agreements that require employees to broadly waive their rights under the National Labor Relations Act and reversed the previous board's decisions in the Baylor University Medical Center and IGT, International Game Technology, cases. And in regulatory news, CalOSHA fined an employer $27,000 because the employee's drinking water was not close enough to its workers. This precedential decision regarding the provisions of water at outdoor work sites says that it must be as close as practicable to the areas where employees are working in order to encourage frequent consumption of water, and the case clarified the definition of what the term as close as practicable means. In this case, Cal-OSHA opened a complaint-initiated safety inspection at the Rios Farming Company Vineyard in St. Helena in August 2018. Inspectors found some workers had to climb through multiple grape trellises to access their drinking water. In 2019, Cal-OSHA cited Rios Farming Company for a repeat serious violation for not having water as close as practicable for their employees. Rios Farming Company appealed the citation, and an administrative law judge affirmed the citation with a modified penalty of $27,000. Then the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board issued its decision, which clarifies that the term as close as practicable means that the water must be as close as reasonably can be accomplished in order to encourage frequent water consumption. In this case, the administrative law judge found and the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board affirmed that the trellises were an obstacle that discouraged employees from frequently drinking water. Then the ALJ and the Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board further found that other reasonable options were available to the employer, such as providing a jug of water in each row where the employees were working, or providing individual water bottles that employees could carry with them and refill from the jugs. February 28th marked the end of California's COVID state of emergency. Almost three years since California Governor Newsom declared COVID-19 a public health emergency, giving his administration broad power to issue mandates and use state funds to fight the virus. Newsom extended the state of emergency five times over the course of the pandemic, most recently last June. And the duration of the state of emergency has been controversial among state Republican leaders, who attempted to overturn the governor's power during a Senate emergency meeting last March, but their resolution to terminate the state of emergency was voted down eight to four, with senators voting along party lines. Last year, the administration unveiled what is known as the Smarter Plan, its $3.2 billion long-term strategy for combating COVID-19 which has been a key component for eliminating the need for emergency provisions. The new strategy outlined preparedness measures such as stockpiling 75 million masks, increasing testing capacity to half a million tests per day, and investing in the healthcare care workforce and local community health organizations. But some disagree it's the right time to end the state's emergency powers. The head of the California Hospital Association told the New York Times earlier this month that February was a terrible time to end the public health emergency because of ongoing strain on California's hospitals. And the White House announced that the federal state of emergency for uh, COVID will end on May 11th, over two months after California ends its own. And to complicate matters a little more, There are actually two federal emergencies ending May 11, the national emergency and the public health emergency. California has recently enacted several laws that force insurers to keep covering COVID care even after the state and federal states of emergency wind down and requires insurers in California to keep covering COVID costs like testing and vaccination after the national emergency ends. On the national level, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator has promised that COVID vaccines will remain free in the US for insured people as a preventative service covered under the Affordable Care Act of 2010. San Francisco had its own public health emergency declaration for COVID in effect and several programs for San Francisco residents, but that city's public health emergency came to an end at the same time as the state's on February 28th. And the California Department of Health finally announced that the state's schoolchildren would not now have to get COVID vaccine and that the department was not currently exploring emergency rulemaking to add COVID-19 to the list of required school vaccinations. The DEA proposed rules for permanent telemedicine prescribing. The Drug Administration announced proposed permanent rules for the prescribing of controlled medications by way of telemedicine. The public will be able to comment for 30 days on these proposed rules. The proposal would reverse a policy enacted during the coronavirus pandemic that allowed doctors to prescribe these medications through telehealth appointments. The move will make it more difficult for Americans to access some drugs used for treating pain and mental health disorders. But the proposed rules aim to maintain expanded access to the telehealth, which has been crucial for millions of patients, particularly those living in rural areas while also balancing safety. The proposed rules proposed to extend many of the flexibilities adopted during the public health emergency with appropriate safeguards. They do not affect telemedicine consultations that do not involve the prescribing of controlled medications. Telemedicine consultations by a medical practitioner that has previously conducted an in-person medical examination of a patient, nor telemedicine consultations and prescriptions by a medical practitioner to whom a patient has been referred, as long as the referring medical practitioner has previously conducted an in-person medical examination of the patient. But the proposed rules would provide further safeguards for a narrow subset of telemedicine consultations. Those telemedicine consultations by a medical practitioner that has never conducted an in-person evaluation of a patient and that result in the prescribing of a controlled medication. For these types of consultations, the proposed telemedicine rules would allow medical practitioners to prescribe a 30-day supply of Schedule 3 through 5 non-narcotic controlled medications, a 30-day supply of buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder, as long as a prescription is otherwise consistent with any applicable federal and state laws. The public now has 30 days to review and comment on the proposals, which the DEA will then consider before drafting its final regulations. And the DEA says it is appreciative of the public's feedback. And in medical news, a new California Workers' Compensation Institute research series on low-volume, high-cost drugs used to treat injured workers in California spotlights a handful of anti-inflammatory and anti-convulsant medications that account for a relatively small share of the prescriptions within their therapeutic drug groups, but that have become significant cost drivers by consuming a disproportionately large share of the payments. Among the key findings for the anti-inflammatory and anticonvulsant drugs, ibuprofen and naproxen represent two-thirds of the anti-inflammatories dispensed, but <clears throat> they were relatively cheap. It was low-volume, high-cost phenoprofen calcium, with an average payment of $1,479, and ketoprofen, with an average payment of $1,073, that kept anti-inflammatories at the top of the list in terms of total drug spent, And the biologic Entrinisept, also known by the brand name Enbrel, accounted for less than Uh, 0.1% of the anti-inflammatory prescriptions in 2021, but was only available as a brand drug with an average payment of $7,716. So it consumed 4.3% of the anti-inflammatory patients. Phenoprofen, calcium, ketoprofen, and and enterinacept are not in the National Medical Database so they have no federal upper limit, FUL, the maximum fee allowed under Medicaid, which also serves as a price control in the California Workers' Compensation Pharmacy fee schedules. Instead, these drugs are paid at 83% of their average wholesale price, which is based on manufacturer pricing. Four anticonvulsant drugs accounted for 24.2% of the 2021 anticonvulsant prescriptions, but 72.5% of the anticonvulsant drugs spend. While 95% of the 2021 prescriptions were generics, with an average payment of $62, the average amount paid for various brand versions were much, much higher. CWCI research on low-volume, high-cost medications will continue with Part 2 in the series, which will focus on medications found in the dermatological, opioid, and antidepressant drug categories, while Part 3 will highlight low-volume, high-cost musculoskeletal and ulcer drugs. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau has released its next report in its industry profile series that gives a comprehensive overview of the healthcare industry in California. The healthcare industry is one of the largest in California with over 48,000 workers' compensation policies and has operations in five distinct healthcare segments that provide medical care. Those are physician practices, dental offices, hospitals, nursing facilities, and home health care. These segments generate 6% of all California workers' compensation insurance premiums. The advisory peer premium rates approved by the insurance commissioner for the healthcare industry are on average about 20% below the statewide average. Within the healthcare industry, the pure premium rates for physician practices and dental offices are relatively low, while those for home, healthcare, and nursing facilities are higher. The differences in pure premium rates by segments are mainly driven by differences in average wage levels and claim frequency, potentially related to higher risk exposure, from hands-on physical assistance provided to patients. Hospitals experienced the latest reduction in payroll and the highest increase in indemnity claim frequency of all health care segments during the pandemic. Dental offices have a much higher share of cumulative trauma claims than other healthcare segments, potentially driven by repetitive movements and long duration of dental procedures. And dental offices have been the highest share of claims involving cut, puncture, and scrape injuries, likely resulting from the use of dental instruments. Nursing facilities and home health care have higher shares of claims involving strain, being struck, and fall injuries than physician practices, likely due to the higher level of physical assistance provided in those segments. And home health care has the largest share of claims involving motor vehicle injuries, as care providers often drive patients to doctor appointments and perform other driving duties for their patients. Overall, the healthcare care industry has a lower-than-average claim severity, driven by the higher share of medical-only claims and the lower share of permanent disability claims. The full WCIRB report is available in the research section of the WCIRB website. Amazon has closed its multi-billion dollar deal to buy one medical in order to expand its growing healthcare businesses to employers. This deal expands Amazon's reach into primary care is it now officially operates 188 clinics in 29 markets. The deal also gives Amazon rapid access to lucrative employer market as One Medical works with 8,000 companies and had 836,000 members at the end of 2022. One Medical, which is not yet profitable, launched in 2007 and markets itself as a membership-based tech-integrated, consumer-focused primary care platform. Amazon says One Medical sets a high bar for human-centered primary care experiences. Access to primary care where, when, and how people prefer with around-the-clock access through the One Medical app, giving people more control of how they seek care and the ability to do so from home or on the go and on-demand virtual care services like 24-7 video chats and easy in-app messaging, which are included in membership at no extra cost. It has same and next-day in-office or remote visits so people can quickly get the care they ask for. They claim it is thoughtfully designed and welcoming with One Medical Offices offering care close to where people work, live, and shop. There's walk-in availability for on-site laboratory services, making it easy to get lab work done where and when it's most convenient. And clinical and digital integrations with leading hospital networks across the United States for more seamless access and coordinated care across primary and specialty care services. But to compete with Amazon, now Walmart, Best Buy, and Dollar General announced health care expansion for their companies. Walmart Health announced that it is expanding into new states and opening 28 centers in 2024. This will expand Walmart Health's footprint into two new states, Missouri and Arizona, and deepen its presence in Texas. And by the end of 2024, it will have more than 75 Walmart health centers across the United States. The company also says that it is changing the physical footprint and layout of the centers so patients spend less time in the waiting room and more time with their doctor. It also integrated modern equipment and technology to enable providers and patients to experience what it claims is Best in class healthcare technology. This includes integrating Epic's electronic health record system across Walmart health locations. It says that with 90% of the U.S. population located within 10 miles of a Walmart, Walmart Health says it is in a unique position to provide health and wellness services where its neighbors already live and shop. The new state-of-the-art facilities will be about 5,750 square feet and located inside Walmart Supercenters and will feature Walmart Health's full suite of health services, including primary care, dental care, behavioral health labs, and x-ray audiology and Walmart Health virtual care telehealth services. Then, electronic retailer Best Buy recently kicked off a partnership with Atrium Health, one of the country's largest nonprofit hospital systems. This partnership combines Atrium's hospital at home program with Best Buy's technological services. Best Buy has been investing heavily in healthcare services over the last few years as an alternative revenue stream to its electronic sales. And it has made several acquisitions in the sector, the most notable being its $800 million purchase of senior citizen focused Great Call Incorporated in 2018. In 2021, the company also bought Current Health, a home care technology platform that offers monitoring through wearable devices. And then, not to be outdone, Dollar General is expanding into healthcare services and what could be a competitive shot across the bow for drugstores and other retailers. The company is piloting mobile health clinics at three stores in Tennessee to provide customers with basic, preventative, and urgent care services, along with lab testing. The discount retailer teamed up with DocGo, a provider of mobile health and transportation services, to provide the medical services, which are set up in large vans and store parking lots. The two companies plan to evaluate customer response and determine the feasibility of expanding the mobile health clinic offering to additional stores. Customers can schedule appointments online or walk-in without an appointment. 75% of the U.S. population lives within about 5 miles from a Dollar General store, Providing unique access to rural and other communities often underserved in the current healthcare ecosystem. The four largest hospital groups in the Sacramento area are all beginning new construction projects to rebuild old facilities, to meet state earthquake safety requirements, and to add new hospital beds in order to accommodate a projected population increase. UC Davis Health System, Sutter Health, Catholic Healthcare West, now known as Dignity Health, and Kaiser Permanente are all undergoing construction projects that will add a combined 3.5 million square feet to their facilities and cost about $2.6 billion. These projects are expected to add as many as 2,000 healthcare jobs by 2013 and already have created a boom in construction employment. UC Davis Health is planning a new medical outpost in Folsom Ranch, a new tower at UC Davis Medical Center in Sacramento, and just south of that is part of the Aggie Square Research Education Project coming out of the ground. And the California Tower will be added to the eastern side of the existing UC Davis Medical Center. It will feature a 14-story hospital tower and five-story pavilion, adding to a hospital complex that has been expanding eastward and serving the neighborhoods at its location for over 150 years. And an 85,000-square-foot building to house the new residency program, at Sutter Rosefield Medical Center, is expected to open in 2024. It features a new three-story building located right outside the current emergency department. And Dignity Health announced its plans to build a new medical office building south of the Highway 50 in the new development known as Folsom Ranch and will house a host of specialty services as well as an outpatient surgery center. Their fulsome announcement comes on the heels of Dignity Health's unveiling of plans to build a new full service hospital in neighboring Elk Grove. City entitlements and environmental approvals are already complete for the future medical campus, and work continues in advance of the groundbreaking and construction. And Kaiser Permanente's rail yards project is part of the healthcare construction boom. It will include an 18-acre Kaiser Permanente Hospital and medical campus. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device, by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fulce with Floyd, Scaren, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. <music>